It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, everyone. This is California News, a podcast that brings you the latest news from across California. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome back, everybody. We continue our series on looking into the situation at the University of Idaho and the four tragic murders, as well as the suspect, uh, Koberger. He's he's just a suspect. It's allegedly that he killed them. So, that's how we want to do this. But first, welcome my co-host, Andrew Bringle, former FBI profiler. Uh, you can also find more about him at uh, Behavioral Science Unit, LLC.com. Welcome back, Andy. Hey, Carlos. A beautifully ugly day here in central New York. <laughs> uh, as we're speaking, it's the uh, fourth day of January 2023. And I'm looking out my window at the lake, which is frozen, at least partially. And it's a cloudy ugly foggy you can't even see the lake the fog but uh i'm happy to be here with you and we're going to talk about um the processes of uh what's going on in idaho as well as uh in general terms uh the types of criminal behaviors and acts that one might uh might uh see and think that they uh, have heard uh in the media and other sources regarding the the case in idaho yeah, and the interesting thing, folks, is again, we don't know if he if he did this or not. He has to be convicted, innocent to proven guilty. But every time I read a news article, that you know they're going to trickle in information each and every who knows every few days. You're going to get a news story uh, about the the individual right now, the perpetrator, and that makes us think. And so we want to elaborate on the areas that they're touching on because I think they're really fascinating areas for the for uh, discussion. And one of the areas I know Andy and I were talking about was some media sites, I don't know who, but some media sites are, are kind of teasing the idea or alluding to the fact that the the suspect or whoever the murderer was of the four, t- the four college students is a serial killer. They're not saying it outright. They're not saying it directly, but they're, they're starting to bring up, it's called the, um, oh, it's, it's an association game in psychology. So what they'll do is they'll talk about serial killer actions and then try to compare it or at least try to bring it into the conversation so people immediately associate it with it. And honestly, my personal opinion, I think it's just clickbait. That's what they're trying to do because they know it, most people are fascinated about serial killers. And that was the interesting thing, Andy. This guy was fascinated about serial killers. I think he was doing a dissertation that went mostly on the emotional and cognitive components of a, of a criminal. I don't know if it was specifically towards serial killers or not, but I know he had a relationship with a famous, um, uh, how would you call her? A famous professor, yeah, professor researcher, yeah, in the world of uh, forensic psych, and she dealt a lot with serial killers. I think she's even written books about it, and I think he had a relationship with her, a business type of relationship or academic relationship, not a personal one. And um, he well, learned I, a lot about that. But go ahead. Yeah, I, I would say a couple of things. One, you know, we're not talking about at least I'm not talking about any specific individual, uh, and certainly not talking about the defendant in this case um, who has uh, his day, will have his day in court, and um, uh, 
and that's not the focus of this uh, podcast. What, what we're going to talk about and what I want to explore is some of the, um, the fascinating aspects of this type of, of crime, serial killers in general, not, not any specific individuals, certainly not directed to the subject in this particular investigation. You mentioned, though, that there is some association in terms of interest from a research standpoint. Um, if, if we looked at everybody who was fascinated with serial killers as a potential subject in this investigation, you'd have millions of, uh, of individuals. My classes uh, is the most popular topic. Of course, people are yeah. naturally, a lot of people are naturally interested. First of all, we got to look at the crime scene at, in Idaho and to determine what type of murder and, you know, people from music to crime like the label stuff, right? I mean, what, is it country music? Is it pop music? Is it classical? Is this a serial killer, uh, active shooter, mass murder, uh, a spree killer? If you look strictly at the definitions, you know, I'll give you some. A serial killer is typically a person who murders three or more people, right? But here's a significant piece on serial killer. There is a significant period of time between the murders. Authorities, uh, you know, debate whether it should be three or four or more bodies or murders. But the, the critical piece is context. We you and I have talked about context. Uh, from a researcher and investigative standpoint, time and space are critically important. That's what defines context. So there has to be a, a number of murders separated by time and space. I'll give you some interesting facts about serial killers. We remember them by their name, not the location, right? So we know Ted Bundy. We know Ed Kemper. We know Dennis Rader, the BTK killer. We know, uh, by the way, uh, Dennis Rader gave himself the nickname BTK, the bind, torture, kill, uh, murder. Jeffrey Dahmer, et cetera. I mean, there's a bunch of them. They're often known by their name. And serial killers have a cult personality in some cases. You know, so uh, Ted Bundy, for example, a lot of people are fascinated with his life. And you mentioned earlier, and we're going to talk about more about this, a number, Ed Kemper and Ted Bundy, well above, and Jeff Dahmer too, Jeffrey Dahmer all had much higher than average intelligence. Um, and we'll talk about some of the traits that are seen in, in serial killers, but serial killers are different than active shooters, which describes a type of mass murder marked right by rapidity, scale, and randomness. And oftentimes in, in, in active shooter cases, you'll have suicide. Kid goes into a school, shoots up the school, and then kills himself. Keybold and... Uh, uh, Eric Harris and, and Dylan Keebold are two examples of that in Columbine, right? Stephen Paddock, Las Vegas shooter that killed himself. Uh, Salvador Ramos in, um, in um, uh, Uvalde, Texas. Nicholas Cruz didn't kill himself, but, you know, he's, he's now on death row, I believe, in, in Florida. What's interesting about active shooters, the different than serial killers, is we often don't remember the shooter. That's right. We yeah. often remember it by the location. The Las Vegas shooter, right? That's Stephen Paddock. The Columbine case. I like think it's actually even better. Less attention for them. But I know that. But my point is, it's, it's interesting yeah. to me how the media and then the public remembers these events, whereas serial killers are often known by their personality and the individual because we're fascinated by what makes, you know, Ed Kemper tick. The behavioral science unit focused on that, right? Mm -hmm. um, active shooters were more focused on the location, right? So it's... Um, the Pulse nightclub, Omar Mateen. Nobody remembers Omar Mateen. Everybody remembers Orlando and the Pulse nightclub or Columbine 
or Parkland High School in Florida. And, and what's interesting about active shooters is that they're often acts of rage, like school shootings, right? So the when, when we heard back in Idaho, let's bring this back to Idaho, the police were theorizing that it was either the house being the target or the individuals being a target. And the media was trying to make a big deal about that and people were confused. Well, the reality is that active shooters often target a location, a school, and then the victims are indiscriminate. Whereas a serial killer will target an individual. They'll often stalk and they'll plan the murders. Uh, Dennis Rader often stalked his prey because they, they think of themselves as almost as hunters. And they want the kill to be up close and personal. Serial killers like Dennis Rader bind, torture, kill. He wanted to look the individuals in the face and take their life away from them because oftentimes, and, and there was a big research project at the Behavioral Science Unit at the FBI, where they studied the mindset of these types of killers, serial killers, and they have a high need for control. Something we're going to talk about in this podcast and a podcast we're going to do a little later on romance is that the distinction and the, and the balance between trust and control. And so a lot of times in serial killers, and we can go through some of the histories of some of these individuals, early in their life, they suffered some trauma. Oftentimes it was sexual trauma and their trust was broken because their, their um, ability yeah, no to control, control was yeah. gone. Yeah. So a, a lot like you know children that have, or young people that have been abused who then become abusers themselves, their victims are representative of that loss of control. They're trying to get that control again. And at the extreme of that is a serial killer who is literally strangling. Um, lack of empathy is a common trait among serial killers. And Dennis Rader, this is one of the most chilling parts of his history. The first family he killed, it was, a, I think, a family of four uh, parents. And he had the 11-year-old and 8-year-old watch as he strangled and killed both parents. The young uh, daughter told her mom, I love you, mommy. Her mom was uh, having her life strangled out of her, choked out of her. Dennis Rader then took the daughter down to the, to the basement, hung her upside down. And uh, uh, Josephie, I think was her name. I'm going by memory. But the young girl turned to Dennis Rader and said, what's going to happen to me? And he says, you're going to go to heaven with your family. And then he choked her to death. Now, that story was told by Dennis Rader, who showed no remorse, no empathy at all in his trial. And he just matter of factly told how he killed these people. But there was a sexual component to Dennis Rader and often a number of these serial killers. He would take trophies with him, wear these garments, the underwear of his victims, and dress himself up, you know, in, in, as women, and then uh, would practice auto-asphyxiation. So he would, he would masturbate until he was almost passed out, and, and then he would release his sexual uh, tension. Um, oftentimes, we're, we see that among serial killers. So back to the active shooters, you don't see that. These are uh, usually targeted locations, whether it's an Orlando a nightclub. Dylan Roof attacked a, a church, killed a number of people. So oftentimes, um, you'll either have emotional rage that leads to an active shooter, or you'll have a targeted terrorism or hate that leads to an active shooter case. And that's what you, the distinctions. Then you have mass murders. Now, mass murders can be both an active shooter or a, a serial killer can kill more people. Uh, Dennis Rader, I gave an example, killed the whole family at one time. Uh, but it's the act of murdering a number of people, typically simultaneously over a relatively short period of time and in close geographic proximity. 
Uh, United States Congress defines mass killings as killing three or more people during one event with no cooling off period. Okay. Um, and then the last one that we're going to discuss is a spree killer. And it's someone who commits a, a criminal act that involves two or more murders or homicides in a short period of time, but in multiple locations. So <clears throat> there's been several cases like that. Uh, there was a white supremacist that uh, was, I think, in Chicago, shot up uh, a synagogue and then went to another location. It was Benjamin, I think his name was? Something yeah, like that. I can't remember that. Yeah, there's too many. Yeah, there's a bunch. But the, the, go to one location, you shoot some people, go to another location, shoot some people. That's a spree killer, right? And those are the distinctions that, that we can make in these cases. Now, having said that, Idaho, what best fits the definition of Idaho? Mass right. murder. Mass murder. You have four victims, mm -hmm. short uh, period of time, geographic proximity, they're all in the same house. So we have a mass murder. Um, we don't know if we have a serial killer. Um, it wasn't an active shooter because it was stabbing. Um, but that's what I would uh, I consider this as a mass murder. Now, the next thing is context, time and space and motive. Peps, as you, as you and I have talked about in other uh, podcasts, all crimes are committed based on an amalgam of four um, four uh, dimensions. One being personal, could be revenge, could be anger, rage, could be the impulses or compulsions compulses of a, a serial killer economic you're doing it to rob someplace burglarize someplace even though he was charged with burglary i believe this defendant um they'll, they'll have to prove the elements of that charge um but if, is there an economic incentive to someone's act um then political or power based uh would be the, the third and then social do they do it for a group or a group's cause um so that's a, those are the things that police will look at as they build their case and the processes of these investigations. They look at the time and space, the context of the act, as well as the potential motives uh, the individual might have had. Uh, as you know, and we've talked about this, and, and uh, then we'll get into the serial killers. Murder is a state charge. It's not a federal charge. There's no such thing as federal murder uh, unless, because there's always an unless or an exception. In the federal system, it's not murder unless it involves terrorism or a hate crime. So there's some federal statutes that that put uh, enhanced penalties where there's terrorism involved involving uh, a murder uh, for hate crime or terrorism, or it's an assault on a federal officer. So we've talked about this in the past. I worked a case where a federal judge was blown up with a bomb, um, and so assault on federal officer can result in in uh, the death of that officer and, and that's a federal charge. And then last is uh, crimes on a government reservation. So that in, would include, you know, murdering someone or homicide, All right? So that's, that kind of sets up where we're at. Now, I wanted uh, you and I to talk a little bit about some of the common traits that, you know, just in, in terms of serial killers, what you might see in, in, in the history of, unfortunately, too long a history of serial killers. Yeah, it's interesting because I also want to make sure people understand that it's much more complex than the media or TV shows will put, put it, make it out to be. So you heard Andy already giving you four different types of killers. And then within those are subcategories, people who have mental health issues, maybe they're psychotic, maybe they're delusional, people who are on substance abuse, both combined. A lot of times the substances themselves can exacerbate the psychosis. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they have other issues. So 
it's so complex. It's not very simple. That's why there's so many differences. And even the FBI says it's one of the hardest things to do is profile somebody because there are so many variables at play that it becomes really complicated to do that, um, to try to figure out the motive, not the motive, but the um, the reason, not the reason behind it, but the, uh, how would you say, the internal drive of that individual, mm-hmm. not necessarily the motive, because the motive can be simple sometimes, even though they're still trying to find a connection. In this case, I'm going to just kind of give some more facts about this case to the people out there. This is from Open Source, the New York Times. Um, he answered, uh, Koberger, the suspect, answered several questions from the judge. Um, he asked him if he was mentally ill or taking medications. He said he was not. So this is going to throw people off as well. Just because he asked them that, there's a lot of other variables here. He might have never gone to see anybody. He, he may be off the medications now. We've seen some other, we've seen individuals in the past, not others, but we've seen individuals in the past that have gone into uh, spree killings or mass murdering that have been off their medications. And you pointed out earlier, Andy, some have been on the medications as well, taking too much or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, but some of them, most of the time that I see it's usually off. And now all of a sudden that increases their psychosis or. Well, you know, what's interesting <clears throat> on that point, what's interesting is uh, a pretty famous profiler at the behavioral science unit, Roy Hazelwood, um, one of the old vanguard, you know, of the, the behavioral science unit, uh, uh, you know, along with Douglas and the rest of them. Wrestler. He, uh, he's known for developing the theory of an organized or disorganized crime scene. And you look at the case in uh, Idaho, and again, not talking about anybody, spe- you know, specific guilt or innocence, but just the crime scene itself and the way they, it was processed. What was released to the mead through the media, open source, is that it was a uh, very horrific crime scene. A lot of blood, uh, victims that were uh, not positioned. They they were killed and left where they were killed. Um, there was a, just a, a lot of horrific, gory details uh, to the crime scene. What would be described in, in uh, Roy Hazelwood's model as a disorganized crime scene. Um, when you look at the traits of someone who is responsible for a disorganized crime scene, um, particularly you know someone who has been a, um, a, a serial killer, that they studied, this individual is usually young. Uh, this person usually has a past history of drug use or is on drugs at the time of the killing. Um, now, when we say the, you know, those are some of the you know, traits that they've seen, common traits, again, not pointing to any individual, they can look at the crime scene and determine, particularly in, in this case, whether there was uh, what type of motive was behind it. Yeah. Uh, Was it a crime of passion? Was this uh, a uh, the outgrowth of of rage or uh, some intermittent explosive or disorder uh, that this individual might have had? So all of that comes into play, not so much in terms of prosecution, but in the processes of the investigation and winnowing out potential suspects so that they can eventually find the the subject that, that might be responsible for the crime. I wanted to ask you this. We'll take the suspect out of it right now, but I thought you might find this entertaining. So there's an expert that was interviewed in a a news channel. I'm not going to name the expert or the news channel. Um, His claim, he says, if you look at this case, Criminology 101, the perpetrator, whoever it is, um, is a moron. 
according to him. Mm. Because if you have a person who studied criminology, they should have known that if you were going to kill these individuals, you should have killed them outdoors, where there's a lot less chance of having evidence. The weather could have destroyed it, the right. elements, the animals, so forth. Yeah. And if you're going to stalk somebody, the worst place to kill them is indoors. So he's kind of giving. Well, listen, it's not a rational act, is it? To go into a That's what house I'm thinking. where there are six people in the home, whoever did this was not acting rationally. If we define rational behavior as making sense by your norms or mine, but to this individual, it was perfectly rational. I don't listen. You know, uh, we've talked about this. I'm a rational choice theorist. I don't like the term. I, I think it should be called reasoned choice theory because humans reason. And this individual went through a process of reasoning and cost benefit. The risk of going into an occupied home, not knowing if there's a gun, not knowing if these people are awake or, or sleeping, the, the risk of doing that is very high. And so the individual had to have enough confidence to think that they could get in and out without being caught, that they could overpower um, at least four people right? Mm -hmm. uh, with nothing more than a fixed bladed knife. And so- Or that yeah, nobody would get out and run and yell. Exactly. Or <laughs> yes, or scream or wake the people up downstairs, any one of which could have made a phone call 911 very quickly. So yeah. it, it's not rational. You know, it's, I listen, and, I, and I'm one of them myself, so I'm not going to criticize people to get on these talk shows and, and, and fill airtime. Um, some of whom have really good insight and good analysis and others, maybe not so much. Um, I will say this. Um, it doesn't make sense to kill and butcher four people. Not any way. It, it just doesn't make sense. So if you're trying to make sense of nonsensical uh, you know, behavior, then uh, yeah, you, you're going to, you're going to scratch your head and say, well, why didn't he, stalk him outside and why didn't he shoot him instead of stab him and why okay those are all good questions to ask you know in in the police interviews you know it's interesting as i'm looking now at the new york post i'll give them a shout out because this is the article i'm reading it but um and i'm not criticizing it's only presenting information that they've come up so far with the suspect brian koberger um he grew up in poconos with his parents nothing there underwent supposedly underwent radical changes during his later teenage years and if you've heard my podcast and before, folks, you know, it's usually one of my flags to kind of start looking at something when you have one of these, uh, if you have a mass shooter or a serial killer, whatever, actually not a serial killer, but usually a mass shooter, uh, mass murderer, any of those individuals, is start looking at that behavior in the late teens. Uh, but at Pleasant Valley High School, the suspect was known as an awkward creep, which you know, that's subjective who repelled girls and reportedly struggled with a heroin addiction. So now is our first time that we've seen a substance abuse comment being made, at least the first time I've seen it. Maybe you've seen it too. I don't know. Yeah. But that's the first Plus, time I've seen it. I look at, I look at drug abuse as a uh, personal trauma. Um, uh, loss of a, of a parent uh, is also trauma. A loss of a parent through drug use has got to be double whammy drama. The, the, there's a, a young person, again, I'm not going to talk about guilt or innocence, but there was a young person arrested in New York, I think it was uh, Christmas or New Year's Eve, who uh, stabbed a couple of police officers, right, uh, with a machete. Uh, they they uh, are suspecting ties to Islamic radicalism. Um, this individual went through behavioral changes, late teens, right? Before that was a uh, 
well-adjusted young man wrestled on his team and all that stuff. The point being that, yes, you're right. A lot of teenagers go through, you know, traumatic experiences and how we deal with those, those traumatic events in our lives that determine what course of, of behavior we choose going forward. And, um, there might have been, you know, circumstances in the life of whoever was responsible for the Idaho uh, uh, violence that we can point to in retrospect and say, wow, here's a change in their behavior. But, to, you know, and, and, and I know you're not doing this, but some people say, well, you know, we can we can look look for those red flags. It's not that easy. It's not that easy because in and of itself, those behaviors don't indicate anything leading up to the butchering of four people in a in a no. frat house and on a college campus that's Not a great even point close. yeah it's a great point remember there is a lot of i always say there's a lot of ingredients that are needed to create yeah. an individual like this it doesn't um it isn't just one thing it isn't just child abuse because there's, unfortunately there's been a lot of individuals who have been abused, been abused as children sexually and physically and overwhelming majority never do anything Salvador Ramos in Uvalde, Texas, is a good example of a tumultuous adolescence. Um, Father, mother had issues. He had violent issues with his mother, moved to his grandmother's place. Um, Had definitely had some uh, indications of intermittent explosive disorder, uh, made multiple threats against multiple people over a large period of time. had a lot of odd behaviors on online and in a video game um, community that he was part of. There were uh, multiple red flags leading up to the him trying to attempting to kill his grandmother and then going to the school and and in um, shooting the school up. Multiple red flags. Um, but in and of itself, any one of those red flags, not enough to do anything. So, you know, it's it's very important that if someone sees something, say something that's you know, it's not it's more than a cliche. If you Mm -hmm. see somebody who's outside their normal baseline, you know, whether it's, you know, self-harm or harm to others, you you should investigate that. Um, So that's that's, again, a very basic uh, premise. But the reality is that some people hide in plain view very well. And serial killers are very good at that. I mean. Ted Bundy looked normal, was a very charming, you know, uh, individual. And uh, serial killers in general are very good at feigning empathy, even though they can't really feel empathy or express empathy. In fact, they, that's one of the traits that many serial killers have is that they they have uh, a lack of empathy towards others and their and their uh, peers. They also, a lot of them, while they tend to be highly edu- or highly intelligent, not necessarily educated, uh, there's usually a history of alcohol or substance abuse either with them or their families. Um, oftentimes, they, the, the turmoil in their family is such that they end up hating their mothers and fathers based on a number of interviews of serial killers. And a lot of, the, a lot of serial killers, uh, their father is absent or abandon the family, and they were raised by domineering mothers. Remember um, Alfred Hitchcock's movie, um, what was it called? Um, Psycho, nice. the Bates Motel, right? <laughs> Dear mother. Yeah, your mother. Yeah. You know, so, here's another part that's interesting. I just I just read this, and 
um, I don't know if you read it or not, but it's interesting. The, the owner of a of a brewing company uh, said that when he saw this individual, the suspect, uh, his behavior caused enough concern for staff to put a note in the company system about him. Uh, the staff put in there, this guy makes creepy comments, keep an eye on him. He'll have yeah. two or three beers and get too comfortable. He would ask the female staff and customers where they, if they were with anybody and where they lived. If the women weren't interested, he would get upset. And then um, he finally had, the owner had to end up talking to him. Quote, he says, hey, Brian, I just wanted to talk to you really quick and make sure you're going to be respectful this time. We're not going to have any issues. The owner recounted that the suspect was shocked that he was even saying it and didn't know what he was talking about. He was totally confused. And then he never went back to the bar again. That's just, I thought that was interesting. Well, I mean, again, you know, when it's another phenomenon, when we hear somebody like uh, Bill Cosby, right? Uh, a woman makes an allegation that is obviously factually based um, against him. Before you know it, there's three or four more women. Then there's five or six more women. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's something that's been going on for some time. Um, these red flags kind of thing, uh, they, they, they didn't just happen. Um, 90% of serial killers are male, right? Um, what's interesting is the vast majority of serial killers uh, have abused animals in their childhood. They've actually played out their sexual fantasies of uh, you know bondage and domination and sadomasochistic behaviors against uh, animals well before they get to their adolescence. Um, it, what's interesting too, 60% of serial killers that have been researched and interviewed, 60% uh, wet the bed beyond the age of 12. Yeah, it's part of that McDonald's triad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And there's a very high rate of suicide attempts among serial killers uh, before they turn to their life of crime. Um, Many, many of the serial killers that have been studied in the uh, FBI's Evil Minds research um, were fascinated with with starting fires. And as I mentioned, uh, sadistic behaviors towards animals. But having said that, those are all dark types of behaviors. Many of these, uh, historically, many of these serial killers um, have a way of smooth talking uh, their victims, their their grandiose egocentric uh, personalities, and their ability to feign uh, empathy allows them to be very effective predators because they they can uh, they can get close to their victims, which is what's necessary for many of them. Because in order for them to get the, the release they're looking for, they need to be able to get close enough to control the victim physically. Um, in um, one case, um, this guy named Joel Rifkin, uh, in terms of lack of remorse, he bragged about his victims. Uh, he, he was full of self-pity, but this guy killed and dismembered at least nine women. But later he called his, con- his own conviction a tragedy. Right? Um, and later got into an argument with another inmate about whose killing spree was more important, his or a guy named Colin uh, Ferguson, who was also a a serial killer. Ferguson taunted him uh, about only killing women. And uh, Rifkin said, yeah, but I had more victims than you. Hmm. So, you know, they they don't all operate that way either. That's the interesting thing. Yeah. I forgot who it was. I think it was a serial killer in 
East Europe who told them to please kill me if you want to spare the world. Yeah, because, you know, it's again, and I'm not equating uh, serial killers to um, pedophiles, but um, I I will say that that it's very difficult to change the behavior of of a pedophile. Uh, I, I heard a federal judge say it best to a defendant during sentencing that there's no way we can cure you. All I can do is incarcerate you and after your release, supervise you. Now, this individual was in his later years, I believe mid to late 50s, and was going to jail and would be released in his mid to late 70s, so about 20 years. And uh, the judge said, you know, there's very little chance that you'll ever be cured of your compulsion to have sex with children. Serial killers are wired, you know, whether it's uh, nature nurture issue, they're wired to prey on others. And um, they get this release. Dennis Rader needed to feel that release, although the outward world looked at him as, you know, a a responsible member of society. (laughs) You know, he was part of his church, had two children, was married. But, you know, in many cases, uh, particularly where there are serial killers who are married or, or have families and the families, you know, can't recognize these quote-unquote red flags that we've discussed it's because they act so normal around them they save that aberrant behavior for when they're stalking their prey there's a guy named um uh andrea chalenklo he was called the butcher of Uh, remember him yeah this guy would you know total lack of empathy he would feast on genitalia from both male and female victims and um, he thought nothing of taking a life. He never thought nothing of, of killing. I mean, for them, it's, it's a form of, of release, even pleasure for them to kill another person. And for this guy, he, he stated that w- what he enjoyed were the cries, the blood and the agony, because it, by doing, by controlling the victim to their death, it allowed him to relax and to feel a certain pleasure that he couldn't feel otherwise. And like I mentioned, in, in there's a number of cases where a, there's a sexual component, uh, whether it's, you know, eating genitalia uh, of a victim or um, in Dennis Rader's case, um, masturbating after after the kills. And these people also another thing that's very common among them is th- their ability to manipulate and be deceitful or deceitful. Right. Um, one that comes to mind is John Wayne Gacy. Because he was oh, yeah. he was able to lure 28 young men to his house. And then he, he actually talked talked a number of them into putting this rope around their necks as a you know as a magic trick. That's right. Yeah, the killer clown. Yeah. And he would convince convince them to put the rope around, and then he would strangle them to death. That's but the victim actually participated. I often wondered, you know, how, if that was part of Gacy's thrill, was getting the victim to unwittingly basically participate in their own murder. Probably, you know? yeah, I would see that. I could see that. Because it's, think about it, it's an ultimate form of, of control that you get your victim to participate in their own murder. I mean, that's, that's 
pretty. It's the ultimate amount of deception you can do. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's definitely deception. I don't know what Raiders score was on the PCL. I think it was in the high 20s or mid-20s. I don't know if he ever did it or not. I know Bundy was in the 30s. Yeah. And there's a definite distinction between the individuals because the higher you go in that PCL score, it's the psychopathy checklist, folks. If you listen to the podcast, I'm sure you've heard of it. If not, you can check it out. Um, but any score over 20, you start getting into that range of psychopathy. And if you start hitting the high 30s, if you know anybody in the 30s, I always say in the PCL, I would probably not know them anymore. <laughs> that was you. <laughs> That's probably not a friend you want to have. Um, but in the mid-20s, I think... Dahmer was 23, 24. Yeah. And that's what they some classify now as well, it's debated all the time between a sociopath or not. They say sociopaths have little kernels of empathy. Yeah. And Dahmer was in that lower range. Bundy was 34. I think Raider was a little higher. I don't think Ra- Raider might have had, he might have been a sociopath, borderline psychopath for the fact of the family. Right. People always ask me, well, how do they get married? How do, do they fall in love? They just know how to act a role, just like an actor. They, in a movie. they, they basically act a role. Yeah. With yeah. shallow emotions. Though. I mean, there was a German serial mm. killer, uh, Rudolf Pelil, and uh, he killed 10 people, later killed himself in prison. But he compared uh, murdering people to a hobby, like playing cards is what he told the police. Oh, he said, uh, what I did is not much greater harm with all the surplus of women that are around nowadays. And then he said, and anyway, I had a good time. That was yeah. his quote. And anyway, I had a good time. So been a there, lot of them. Yeah. And, and they make very little distinctions. Funny, you know, I was looking at uh, videos, you know, when you go online and check your emails, they kind of clickbait. You were talking about that earlier. So <laughs> for some reason, I don't know how I'm hooked up, but uh, my browser shows me these um, safaris in the Serengeti. Oh. Right. And uh, I, I click on one of them and basically it'll be something to catch your attention, like, you know, crocodile uh, versus lion. You're like, oh, that's got to be a good fight. So you, so I'm watching it. Right. And um, so I'm, I'm watching this video of the and it, here's what what hit me when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I used to watch Mutual of Omaha oh, yeah. every Sunday right before Disney. And uh, what was interesting that the lion would go after the gazelle and then right before the lion would was to make the kill, they would cut to a commercial. You didn't see the kill. That's right. <laughs> Nowadays, whether it's, you know, Nat Geo or your browser, not only do you see the lion get the gazelle, you see him eating the entrails. I just saw this morning, I saw hyenas attacking uh, injured rhino and they were literally eating him inside out. I'm like, this is, you know, and this is what people are exposed to. And when you have, you know, I had to turn it off when you, when you have, you know, any kind of sense of empathy, you feel bad for the, the animal, but 99% of serial killers, 99% of serial killers have committed acts of animal abuse. It makes sense. There's a lack of empathy there. If you can see, especially animals that are more domesticated type of animals, like a, like a dog or a cat, you can see you have a problem. There's a huge lack of empathy. Well, it's also, you know, again, a terrorist doesn't just go blow up the World Trade Center, right? Uh, I can give you a number of cases where the terrorist actually carried out uh, trainings for that act, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Murr building bombing, Timothy McVeigh uh, actually went, he and his accomplices, went and blew up a number of smaller uh, explosive devices before 
they uh, attacked the Murrah building. And there's a number of other cases like that. And the, re the reality is serial killers don't just go start killing humans. They start out small. It's a gradual, you know, um, in, in, in a gradual process. So they, they start out killing animals, but oftentimes their fantasies that they want to carry out against humans begin with those animals and the abuse. I don't even know if it's quantified, but I think a majority of them actually said the very first killing was disturbing. Yes. Yeah. Right. But it's just, shows you. it's this level of impulse, but there's two things at play impulse and com compulse, right? Compulsivity <laughs> is different yeah. than impulse. Yes. So uh, again, going back to the uh, other form of predator, the, the pedophile, they're compulsed. They think they're constantly thinking about molesting, whether they're molesting the child or not. They're fantasizing about this. It becomes such a constant drain on their uh, psyche and their and their energy that they have to act upon it. They feel they have to. Right. They're compulsed to do so, um, which is different than impulse. Impulse would be if you happen to see a child and then you your impulse was to grab that child and, and, and rape them. Right. Yeah, opportunistic. Uh, opportunistic. Right. Yeah. And most of these serial killers are more more compulsive uh, in their acts than impulsive. Most of the serial killers will stalk their prey um, instead of, you know, have a, a crime of opportunity. That's not to say that it's 100%, but in most cases, the, uh, the serial killer will take their time uh, to study their prey and look for the right opportunity to, um, because again, what we said earlier is critically important. They want to control as much of the um, crime as they possibly can, and that includes the death of their victim. They want to make sure that they, uh, that they can, because they're trying to seek a release, an emotional release. It's highly personal. Uh, when we talk about the PEP scale, it's uh, highly personal. It's not economic. It's not power. It may have some elements of power, but that's not the driving force. And it's not social. It's not for the group or the cause. I think it's a good place to wrap up. I think we've, it was a fascinating discussion that we had. There's no doubt about that. And by the way, folks, if you're into serial killers, criminal minds and stuff, don't be too hard on yourself. I mean, it's, it's one of the, a lot of psychologists believe it's the safest way for us to deal with that dark side of ourselves that we do control ones who don't commit these acts it's another way of looking at this young called the shadow andy fascinating conversation I think it we're is off i i think it is a fascinating conversation uh we we certainly can expound on it uh, more in the future i think you know it's oh we didn't touch everything that's for sure no not even close <laughs> not even close folks you know what to do share subscribe hit that like button you know we like it see ya Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.